This is Christian Knutson and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live via our home and the WRT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call said he would not enforce any abortion bans in Wisconsin, stating that doing so would undermine public safety. A Wisconsin law banning abortion has been unenforceable since the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade ruling in 1973 that legalized abortion. However, the conservative-dominated Supreme Court may overrule Roe in a new case, which may in turn cause the Wisconsin law from 1849 to take effect again. A Democrat, Call stressed the serious negative health consequences that could occur from enforcing a ban, reported the Wisconsin State Journal. The State Department of Justice is focused on investigating crimes like homicide, sexual assault, and arson, and Call said he would not divert resources to cases that would be brought under an abortion ban. UW-Madison is pausing an employee COVID-19 vaccine requirement as a federal court blocked the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for federal contractors. The injunction was decided in the U.S. Southern District of Georgia, but applies nationally since one of the legal parties conducts business in multiple states. Only a small percentage of UW-Madison employees would have been affected by the January 18th enforcement date, as 96% of them are vaccinated. Employees are allowed to request a medical or religious exemption. UW-Milwaukee also plans to pause its employee COVID vaccine requirement until further notice. The statewide sexual assault kit tracking database has started its pilot program, the Capital Times reports. This database will allow victims of sexual assault to track the status of the kits they have provided and will ensure that all kits collected statewide will go through a centralized system. State Attorney General Josh Calls said that only a handful of law enforcement agencies across the state are included in the pilot program. However, once the database officially launches, it will be used statewide. The database is a result of legislation signed by Governor Tony Evers last week after it was found that thousands of sexual assault evident kits went untested across the state. Call says that he does not have a definitive timeline for when the database will be developed statewide. A white former military police officer has filed state and federal civil rights complaints against the city of Madison after he was interviewed but not selected as a finalist for an independent police monitor position. Eric Hill claims that the Madison Police Civilian Oversight Board discriminated against him due to being a white man and a former military police sergeant. Hill currently works in the private sector in Hanoi, Vietnam. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Hill said he found 29 instances on social media accounts that made biased and defamatory statements about his race, gender, and former profession. The posts include a tweet by Oversight Board member Ananda Deacon saying, quote, no more pigs in our community, end quote, and a meme posted by board chair Shadera Kilfoy Flores. This meme referenced the Netflix show Squid Game, comparing it to the U.S. military. Madison was also sued earlier this year by the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty due to the oversight board reserving at least six seats for black people. The Madison Metropolitan School District is exploring a potential partnership with the Rape Crisis Center in Madison to expand services to students, the Cap Time reports. The move comes after students in Madison High School staged two walkouts in less than a week in October over the issue of sexual violence. Kelly Cook, the school district's Title IX coordinator, said she hopes the center can help develop prevention campaigns and provide training to students and employees. The center has been serving Dane County since 1973 to provide services to survivors of all forms of sexual violence. And now on to today's top stories.
For the last two months, teachers and staff in the Madison Metropolitan School District have needed to use personal sick leave if they contracted or were exposed to COVID-19. Now, the Madison School Board is taking steps to create a bank of sick days for all staff to use. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has the story. The Madison School Board discussed additional sick leave for staff who have tested positive for COVID-19 at a jam-packed meeting last night. The issue was brought up by board member Nikki Vandermeulen last week. Vandermeulen told the Wisconsin State Journal that she had brought up the issue many times over the last six months, but that the issue had gone ignored. At a special meeting last night, the board agreed that action should be taken to provide extra COVID-related sick leave to staff. Previously, staff could utilize the Federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which allowed for paid leave due to COVID. That act expired in September of this year at the beginning of the school year. Now, staff have to use their own sick days to cover exposure to COVID. Teachers in the Madison Metropolitan School District are only given 10 sick days per year. As cases rise across the district, Vandermeulen says that staff is doing all they can for their students. People need to be able do honest work for honest pay, and they're doing that the best they can. But COVID is a game changer, and it's changed every single industry in this country, and probably in the world. So we have to find a way to do that. Additionally, I think we have to also try and include, include sick leave that's separate from COVID leave. While the specifics for the plan have not yet been hammered out, the goal is to create a bank of sick days that all staff will be able to use when they have either tested positive for COVID-19 or need to quarantine. Board Vice President Savion Castro says that the, both the district and the staff can help address this issue. You know, I think this is a, an instance where we can lead with our humanity um, at as well we should. Um, I'm certainly interested in a cost estimate and proposal, though uh, my instinct tells me that as our vaccination rates go up and we continue to use the best mitigation practices that we can absolutely afford this. Um, and as, as well as uh, looking into a time bank component as well. Board President Ali Muldrow says that she is proud that the board is able to speak in unison on the issue. Um, and I, I'm grateful for this conversation because I think what is easy to pull away from this conversation is there's a sense of solidarity amongst board members, amongst our administration, amongst our union, that we want to do anything we can to alleviate stress um, and to, to make our, our educators know that they are supported. Um, and that, that means, you know, looking to new tools and new options, doing things we haven't done before. And it's good to know that we can create a supportive environment amongst the board um, for, for that kind of challenge. Madison Metropolitan School District Superintendent Carlton Jenkins says that he will be attending a meeting with school administrators on Wednesday and is ready to move with, quote, lightning speed to address the issue. While there is not a proposal written yet, the board agreed that one should be written as soon as possible and look to address it at the first regular meeting after winter break. Also discussed at last night's meeting was the school district safety plan to be given to the Department of Justice at the end of the month. The plan is designed to organize their approach for prevention, preparedness, response, and recovery from safety incidents. The board has said that they will not be updating any part of the overall district safety plan this year. However, they will not be ignoring the 
issue either. The board stated that they will be working with multiple groups, including the Madison Police Department and Dane County Emergency Management, in January of next year. The group will review multiple parts of the plan for potential revision for the 2022-2023 school year, including one to report sexual violence, emergency procedures around sexual violence, school safety teams, and one to involve police and safety incidents. Recommended revisions for the plan will be brought to the board next spring. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected an appeal from a Wisconsin conservative group that claimed that Governor Tony Evers violated its constitutional right to freedom of the press in 2019. This decision is the last in a years-long series of rulings against the group and a final win for the Evers administration. To learn more about the case, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke to Bill Leaders about the case and the impact that it will have. Yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected an appeal from conservative think tank the John K. McIver Institute for Public Policy against Governor Tony Evers. The institute alleged that Evers violated their staffers' constitutional right to free speech and freedom of press after not being allowed into a media briefing in 2019. Last year, a federal judge had rejected the group's arguments, a ruling which was upheld by the Seventh U.S. Circuit's Court of Appeals earlier this year. With me today is Bill Leaders, editor of the Progressive Magazine and president of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, a group that works to protect the public access to government meetings and records. Bill, thank you for talking with me today. Good to be here, Nate. So starting things off, what are the arguments for both Governor Evers and the McIver Institute? Why was McIver not allowed at the press briefings and why did McIver feel that they had a right to be there? Well, this is a re- routine press briefing, and the McIver reporters were not allowed into it, and uh, they were upset by that, and they filed a lawsuit against it. And what I've said from the very beginning is I am not sure uh, what the law will hold with regard to a situation about the right of a public official, like a governor or his staff, to limit access to a press briefing. Um, maybe it's okay, maybe it's not okay, but my feeling as the head of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council is that the governor should not be afraid to have a conservative reporter come uh, and cover a, a briefing or a meeting uh, that he or his staff hold. Uh, I think I said uh, right off the bat that uh, if Tony Evers has what it takes to lead state government, he ought to be able to withstand the inclusion and presence of reporters from a conservative news outlet. So I stand by that, uh, but the Wisconsin, the, excuse me, the U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear this case, which leaves in place uh, the rulings of lower courts at the federal level uh, that it was not a violation of McIver's rights to be excluded from this press briefing. The uh, courts have held that that is within the, the jurisdiction of the public official to decide who is allowed to come to a press briefing. So earlier this year, former Governor Scott Walker took sides with the McIver Institute, calling on the Supreme Court to take on the case. Why uh, did Walker feel the need to join them in this case? That's a good question. You have to ask him because my understanding is that Scott Walker also limited uh, the media who uh, would be allowed to attend his briefings. Certainly other Republicans have done so. Robin Voss. Uh, has uh, not allowed some representatives of media that he considers to be uh, to the left uh, to have the same privileges as other media. So uh, it's a little hypocritical, I think, for 
Scott Walker to have urged the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case in order to establish that any media should be allowed to attend the press briefing when that wasn't really his own policy when he was governor. Now, what does this years-long ordeal now and now this ruling yesterday mean for freedom of the press? Is this going to have any larger overacting implications? Well, it might. I think uh, public officials are going to feel as though it's a settled matter of law that they can decide which media outlets are allowed to uh, to attend something, and you know, and they are free to exclude ones. Uh, who they don't like. Now, obviously, it's always should be within the purview of a public official to exclude media representatives who are disruptive or uh, interfere with the ability of others to see and hear what's going on. But that wasn't the case here. And I think, you know, in general, I don't see why there's not that many people are just dying to go to a press conference that's held by uh, Tony Evers. I don't think they need to Uh, selectively exclude some people. There's just not that many people who want to be there to begin with. So, Bill, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share on this subject? Uh, I think it was good that uh, my organization uh, supported the right of the McIver Institute's reporters to be present at this event. I think that the governor should have uh, not put an impediment in the way of uh, certain individuals from being able to, to cover this. Uh, But, you know, I guess it is his choice, and the courts have ruled that, and, um, you know, so be it. Bill, that was all the questions that I had for you. I've been speaking with Bill Leaders, editor of the Progressive Magazine and president of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council. Bill, thank you so much again for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today, Wisconsin mourns the loss of Dick Wagner, a local politician, historian, author, mentor, and advocate for LGBTQ rights. WORT News Director Sholly Pittman has more. Friends and mentees told WORT today that Wagner was a trailblazer, leaving behind an extraordinary life of public service, commitment to LGBTQ rights, and mentorship to future community leaders and politicians. Wagner passed away yesterday afternoon at the age of 78. Wagner helped create a city and county ordinance prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. He was the first openly gay member of the Dane County Board of Supervisors. First elected in 1980, he would serve for another 14 years on the Dane County Board, spend four years as its chair, and serve on several powerful committees. Just two years after Wisconsin was elected to the Dane County Board, Wisconsin passed a bill banning discrimination in employment and housing based on sexual orientation, the first state in the nation to do so. A year later, Wagner would be appointed by then-Governor Tony Earle to co-chair the Governor's Council on Lesbian and Gay Issues, which would hold public hearings across Wisconsin about enforcement of the law. David Clarenbach, a longtime state legislator and friend to Wagner, credits Wagner with the success of that push for equality as much as anyone. The, the Governor's uh, Council on, on Gay and Lesbian Issues 
uh, conducted a series of public hearings around the state uh, in the immediate aftermath after the enactment of the anti-discrimination law. And so it was Dick Wagner's efforts and that of Governor Tony Earle and the council to take that message to the village square and to educate and sensitize the general public and policymakers and law enforcers at the local level to educate them as to the uh, existence of this law and the meaning of that new law. Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald, also a friend to Wagner, characterizes him as a man of many talents, a chef, historian, author, politician, gardener, and collector. And he credits Wagner for serving as a role model and mentor to future progressive leaders, especially those in the LGBTQ community. You know, I mean, the thing I say about Dick is that he was so selfless um, in everything he did. He he cared so much about this county and this city and, and dedicated his life to making it a better place. You know, he hosted, you know, countless fundraisers at his house. And but more importantly, he was such an important mentor to so many of so many people in, in this community. I, you know, people like Tammy Baldwin and Mark Pocan and, and and just many of myself, many others, and uh, was a real inspiration. You know, being the first gay county supervisor, um, you know, running running as an out candidate, then the county board chair you know, really opened doors for, for people and, and led, really led by example. In a statement today, Senator Baldwin said that Wagner was, quote, a deeply inspiring person in my life as a role model, mentor, and lifelong friend. She added that she might not have even entered public service if not for Dick Wagner. Wagner was also instrumental in local development projects, the preservation of local parks, and historic preservation work, in addition to his advocacy for gay and lesbian rights. He was instrumental in creating several downtown fixtures, including the Monona Terrace. He served on numerous boards and commissions, including the Wisconsin Arts Board, the Madison Landmarks Commission, and the Madison Trust for Historic Preservation. He served on the board of Fair Wisconsin for over a dozen years, helping in the fight against a 2006 ballot referendum banning gay marriage. Mark Webster, a longtime friend who served on the Fair Wisconsin board with him, says Wagner played a pivotal role in civic engagement as a progressive. The role Dick played in civic engagement as a progressive, as a progressive, fighting for things like regional transportation and fighting for things like LGBTQ rights and historic preservation and environmental protections. And he did a a lot of this before it was cool, you know, from the 60s and the 70s. And he was one of America's first openly gay elected officials. Today, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, Madison's first out mayor, added that Wagner was an inspiration for future generations of LGBTQ candidates like her. Yeah, I mean, he was absolutely an inspiration. And, uh, you know, he and, and other folks who, you know, were the first in their positions and and often the first in their communities, you know, really did pave the way for the rest of us and were quietly and sometimes not so quietly encouraging to folks who were, you know, running for city council or county board or other offices. And Dick was definitely that. I mean, he was, he, I think, really believed in, in public service and, uh, encouraging other people's public service. But he also, you know, even after he stepped down from the county board, he served our community in so many different ways. 
Alderman Mike Revere was a longtime close friend of Wagner and says he touched countless lives. Well, you know, my dear my dear friend Dick Wagner uh, absolutely had a zeal for life. He he uh, was engaged in so many activities and hobbies, and that doesn't even come close to all the public service, of course, that that he fulfilled many lifetimes of um, through all of the work he did, almost all of it on a volunteer basis over his many decades of public service. So he, you know, I, Dick was absolutely a life well lived. He touched countless people, myself, including in so many ways, his, his friendship meant the world to me and so many others. Um, you know, he mentored countless political candidates, especially those running as out LGBTQ candidates and and whether the elections were won or lost he would continue that mentorship uh over the years in 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 many different ways and and so many of us were just so fortunate to have dick in our lives a historian by training wagner authored two volumes about wisconsin's gay history in the last years of his life we've been here all along provides a picture of gay history before 1969 and the stonewall riots and coming out moving forward wisconsin's recent gay history was just released in mid 2020. revere credits wagner with documenting and archiving much of wisconsin's lgbtq history Wagner was an avid gardener and chef. In recent years, he had been working to help expand Ulbrich Botanical Gardens. He was also responsible for preserving Period Garden Park on Gorham Street. And he passed away in another park that he helped create in the 1970s at Kara McGee Triangle Park on Jennifer Street. Alder Revere says he plans to propose renaming the park in Wagner's honor. I think it would be a very appropriate lasting tribute to Dick if the city renamed that park um, in Dick's honor. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a memorial service for Dick Wagner will be held on January 8th at the Holy Wisdom Monastery in the town of Westport. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sholly Pittman. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News right here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call looks into one of the most popular social media pages on the UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly finds a new use for solar panels. And Radio Astronomy takes a spin around the Martian landscape. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time right now is 6.32, and you're listening to local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks so much for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Sophia Vento talks with us Badger Barstool, UW-Madison's Barstool sports affiliate. If anything, I think that this offers, you know, an opportunity for campus community members to really reconsider the culture at UW-Madison. 
and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by college news editor Sophia Vento to talk about how the campus community views Badger Barstool. Thanks so much for joining us, Sophia. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your story and why you decided to write about this. Yeah, well, obviously Barstool and Barstool Sports are um, is a pretty big, has a pretty big presence on social media and just sort of in like the pop culture zeitgeist. But, you know, specifically at UW-Madison too, um, their affiliate accounts have definitely a hold on sort of campus conversation. I have noticed a lot of people being like, oh, did you see that on Barstool? Or like, oh my God, that's so funny. We should send it to Barstool. So it just is such a big part of so many conversations on campus. Not all of them, definitely, but it's clearly just has such a sort of hold on just culture and campus culture in general. And I was just really interested in what people actually thought about it and sort of the role that it has here on campus. If someone's never heard of Badger Barstool or Wisco Chicks before, how would you describe these platforms, you know, particularly on Instagram? Yeah, so the Instagram ones are definitely their biggest um, following, but I describe them as um, not necessarily comedy accounts, but sort of just a sports comedy, like, funny video account they post you know submissions but also develop content whether that be about you know sports and football happening but um just sort of a look into some of the party culture at campus whether it's trying to do that or not but yeah just sort of a submission and post accounts um wisco checks is more tailored to women whereas um badger barstool is more sports related and stuff um But yeah, it's definitely sort of hard to explain, but just videos, you know, memes, posts about UW-Madison, things going on here. So you talked to the platform's administrator and some supporters of Badger Barstool. What did they have to say about what it contributes to campus and sort of how it plays a role in the broader campus culture here? Yeah, so I talked to Al Purvis, um, who is the Badger Barstool TikTok administrator as well. It has He also has his own personal TikTok, which has quite a following. But overall, he seems to view their um, role and accounts as sort of just a way to like show a funny side of campus. Um, so whether what people send them or um, things that they post, um, all the administrators do sort of work in like cohesion, um, posting things across platforms. But... Um, Overall, they just sort of view it as a way of just showing like a college experience. Something interesting that Al said was that he sort of views it as something that the university, you know, as an institution maybe wants to ignore. So yeah, overall, just sort of campus things happening. Yeah. So you also heard from some people who were critical of this platform. What did they have to say about why it might not represent everyone's college experience here? Yeah, um, I think this is, has, been, has been a big conversation, you know, just campus-wide, you know, take Barstool out of the equation. But um, a party culture at Madison, it's, it's real, it exists, and a lot of people don't necessarily fit into that or traditional notions of that, as well as, you know, sort of this uh, sports games day, game day culture. A lot of these things, um, in the view of um, one interviewee, Gracie Regala, who is a senior, is that a lot of these things are sort of rooted in whiteness as well and misogyny and racism. Um, so overall, they, ju- uh, they just don't, a lot of these uh, critics and people that are concerned about these accounts really do not feel seen in these elements that are shown on the accounts and don't really see it as a, um, not correct way, but a realistic way of how a lot of um, 
UW-Madison students operate and live. Yeah, so one of the examples that you use in your story is the Mifflin Street Block Party, which was held last spring during COVID. Can you explain what was happening there and sort of what the response was from people on these platforms? Yeah, so the Mifflin Street um, Block Party has been something that's met, been met with criticism from officials, university officials for decades, honestly. But um, last year, given COVID, they, they were pretty clear, um, both city, county, um, university, stakeholders that it should not be happening given COVID-19 being a real present threat. But um, a lot of the concern came from actual events where I don't know the exact number of uh, attendees, but well into the thousands. And at one point, a car was um, destroyed, trampled, you know, people were standing on top of it, resulted in quite a bit of damage um, for the uh, community member's car that it was. Um, the community was definitely a little divided on sort of it, where some students and some community members were just like, this is a tradition, this is what happens. Whereas um, a lot of community stakeholders, um, including um, Regala or Gracie, as well as, you know, organizations like the BIPOC Coalition and stuff are really critical of this and sort of viewed it not only as a disregard for um, health policy at the time, but also just sort of a um, look into other bigger conversations happening in the community as there was a heavy police presence, but no um, violence as whereas, you know, during protests during the summer, there was quite a bit of police violence um, at gatherings. So it was sort of just like a catalyst for a lot of conversation about a lot of social and cultural issues facing Madison specifically and UW Madison. Um, but yeah, it offered a really interesting look, especially given that Barstool was heavily involved in posting um, about the event in anticipation, but also a lot of the stuff that went on. Yeah, so you also learned a little bit about UW Athletics and their relationship with Barstool. What did you kind of find out about what's happening over there? Yeah, this was really interesting and something I hadn't thought about as much, just given that when I think of Barstool, I don't really think of it as a sports thing, which is obviously a really big part of it. I just don't really fall into that audience. But um, I thought it was really interesting to hear this side, just obviously given the sports and athletics piece. Um, and it was, I was sort of surprised to hear that um, they've been pretty cut and dry, according to this source specifically, who has to remain anonymous given that um, they're still an employee, but that they don't really want to be associated with Barstool at all. You know, Barstool is a pretty big brand overall, you know, nationally. They have quite, quite a few um, partnerships with different sports entities and athletics. I don't know about athletic departments specifically, but just, you know, the sports industry in general. So it was pretty interesting to hear that, according to the source, that, you know, they really, really don't like Barstool and what they stand for. And they, you know, view themselves as more serious in, in the sports realm as well. So it was just a really interesting perspective given it being such a big part of campus culture. So as part of this story, you also talked with a digital studies expert here at UW. What did he have to say about the relationship between social media and college culture and how the two kind of reflect off of each other? Yeah, this was a, definitely a really interesting conversation. Um, speaking to Professor Rob Howard, um, he just really, really emphasized that Social media is not necessarily the problem, but is instead sort of this vehicle for an already existing culture. Um, it's sort of antiquated to blame social media for everything. And obviously it's something that has been a cultural conversation for decades, but it's just really clear, according to um, Howard, that 
culture is just ingrained. Culture is real. It's going to, you know, show up in whatever way. And this media just sort of is a way of reflecting that. And, you know, in some cases it fires it up and emphasizes it in ways that make it more, you know, and more of a presence in conversation. But um, overall, um, social media just plays a really crucial role in obviously our lives today. And of course, it's going to reflect a culture that is, you know, pretty widespread. What do you think students and community members should take away from this story and how they're thinking about Badger Barstool and its reflection of campus? Yeah, I think given that this is just such a big issue relating to culture here at UW Madison, I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer when it comes to the role of these accounts on campus. If anything, I think that this offers, you know, an opportunity for campus community members to really reconsider the culture at UW-Madison, not necessarily the accounts or maybe within that, how the accounts may or may not be a part of this culture. But I just think it's really important to remember that, you know, there's not really a solution to this and whether or not you believe it's a problem or not, it's sort of up for interpretation. But I think overall, just reconsidering how we view culture here at UW-Madison and what we want to do about it. Great. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us, Sophia. Thank you so much, Hope. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. You can also find links to our podcasts on our website. The story that we talked about today is featured in our Fall Farewell Print Edition. You can find our digital version online or at stands near campus. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. As cleaner energy becomes more and more widespread, people are finding new applications for the tools that make renewables possible. On this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explores how solar panels are being used to watch birds. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about renewable energy and the environment for birds. And I have had this on my mind over the last, oh, let's say eight years maybe, since I had a really great project that was started at our Wildlife Center with the University of Wisconsin-Platteville Engineering Department program. And it was an amazing relationship where uh, a professor that worked there uh, had a group of engineering students. They were in their senior year, and they had some grant money for renewable energy projects that would help nonprofits. And it was just the coolest thing trying to figure out what kind of project we could do, how it would help wildlife, how it would help rehabilitators, And in the end, we decided on solar panels on top of our flight pens to be able to run live cameras so that we can watch the wildlife in real time without actually having to go in the pen to disturb them. And it was just a beautiful project where students got to learn. They got to use some grant money to be able to help their community. Um, they were able to just, you know, take it, present it and say, hey, I did something really good with this. And this solar power, this renewable energy 
uh, helped us with uh, cameras that we still use constantly, you know, today. And that project really started into, you know, a really, it was a small project that bloomed, I would say, into something bigger. So even a couple of years after, we had another project that uh, helped with one standalone solar panel to power our duck pens. So our duck pens or our waterfowl enclosures um, all have uh, the ability to plug into an outlet when we need to drain the ponds with a sub pump, which takes a lot of energy. And we're able to get that energy from the sun. We also have our 72 foot flight pen. We named it Wind and it has three solar panels on top that run some batteries and power a couple more cameras. So now we have multiple cameras. We have about six of them that are installed in different flight enclosures on our property. And all of them have been hooked up to uh, solar panels since the project was started. Now we're in the process of revamping that. So it's been a few years and you know over time systems degrade. And so we're working uh, with some other uh, nonprofit agencies to try to figure out what we can do next with it. You know, uh, how can we maybe put more solar panels up and how could we get ourselves off the grid? How could we tie into the grid and maybe help promote um, healthy environmental practices by using a rehab center to put, you know, solar panels and renewable energy up. You know, why is solar power even good for wildlife or birds? Well, you know, in opposite of maybe your wind turbines, which can cause some issues, you know, there've been a lot of studies uh, for birds and bats and other species where the turbines, although it's a great renewable energy source, can cause those animals to get sucked in very close to the blades. They're not able to pull themselves away just because of how big, how large, and those wind speeds, everything would just pull them towards it, or even the light that might be coming from the top of it for airplane use. Um, you know, does that attract certain birds? Solar power is the kind of the opposite. I don't want to say that there aren't, you know, some problems where you might be able to see the top of a solar panel. And just like we have issues within the winter, seeing, you know, the roads and the shiny reflection of the light onto some sort of wet surface that might cause a bird to think it's water and potentially crash land. But it's very few and far between times where that might occur. So just to give you an idea, and you can definitely check this out online, um, uh, Audubon did a really great article about solar power and why it's good for birds. So I'd really encourage you to read it. It's from 2017, but you know, at that time it was about, you know, they say that two thirds of the electricity in the US was coming from, you know, coal, oil, and natural gas. So the goal is to try to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by using renewable energy. And so birds, you know, obviously there's a lot of changes with their populations due to climate change. So the more that we can use a renewable energy source like solar power, then hopefully the better off that they will be. Uh, honestly, it's 300 some species of North American birds and so many thousands more that, you know, carbon pollution and climate change is going to cause a problem with their areas, where they live, where they migrate, what food sources are available. Uh, so every little bit helps. And and it's, a, you know, an investment for the future, I guess you could say. So the it's called photovoltaic, but PV solar is what we're looking for. And usually they're put on the roofs of houses or community solar gardens. It's got a whole bunch of cells where it collects the, the sunlight and then it either goes straight into batteries for storage or it can be hooked up again to the energy grid so that you can um, uh, take some money off that's coming from renewable power, potentially even get some back. You know, it's just the type of thing that maybe you want to promote putting on larger roof surfaces at other uh, locations around Madison. I'm not sure if this is necessarily a benefit or, um, or not, but it's beneficial to the birds. A lot of times people will have them nest 
underneath the structures of solar panels, depending on how high off and at what angle they are from the roof. So that's uh, one downside is putting them up. You'll get lots of birds nesting, but then I guess the upside is that the birds get another place that's a safe shelter to nest. So uh, I guess good and, and not so good, depending. And then the only thing to mention is that thermal solar is actually the type of solar that's not good for birds. It's different than the the photovoltaic, which is the kind that you see most often, those square black panels. Thermal solar is concentrated solar, and it really the it generates electricity uh, by taking solar rays and then transforming it into like steam. And that steam, you know, if it's going to power generators and things, that's that's great. But there's a lot of mirrors that can change light patterns for birds, attract birds. Also, if there's a steam vent for some reason, you know, we have had issues with like maybe not a steamed bird, but if you can think of a methane flare similar to that, where if it's possible a bird got too close, it definitely could injure them, harm them, kill them potentially. So that is that is definitely a tough one. So so high heat areas like that, when it's generating that much power, that much steam, that much heat, that can be a downside to, to birds. So for some of those that are the larger energy developments, you know, those solar power stations and things, that's where we're seeing some issues you know, that birds could be affected. But for the photo, the photovoltaic systems and the ones that you might be interested in, in investing in, uh, there's a lot less risk for birds and actually provides some good habitat for them. So something worth considering, you could check with any of the solar companies that are here in the Madison area locally or throughout the state and definitely consider it because it's not only good for birds in the environment, uh, helping play your part for reducing carbon emissions, but also how knowing that that type of solar panels and power helps wildlife rehab facilities like our own to be able to, you know, power items that we need, like cameras and sub pumps and things. Really neat that we're able to provide that and uh, glad to promote those types of services and practices around our area. So yeah, consider renewable energy the next time you think about birds. Also, if you are interested in, uh, you know, promoting that here at our wildlife center, get in touch with us. You can definitely give us a call if you have any questions, uh, whether it's about birds or solar panels and your own house or, you know, trying to help invest in them. Our number here is 608-287-3235. Uh, and otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this year, Radio Astronomy discussed the Perseverance rover and its Ingenuity Copter, a duo of rovers on Mars. This week, Rourke Habiger shares updates on new abilities of these probes and explains how NASA can use them to conduct better research on the Martian landscape. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke Habegger, and I'll be your host for today. Back in February, Michael Rosenthal and I covered the Perseverance rover, NASA's newest mission to Mars. Then, in April, Kendall Hall covered the Ingenuity helicopter, a small drone that went along with Perseverance. Kendall covered the first test of powered flight on another planet as Ingenuity flew 10 feet into the air. Today, I want to provide you with an update of the Ingenuity Copter's exponential progress. 
Since being separated from the Perseverance rover, it has completed 17 flights and is on its way to meet up with the rover again. All by itself, Ingenuity has been hopping around Mars, flying at a cruising altitude of 30 feet and covering as much as 2,000 feet across the Martian surface in individual flights. Those numbers might not be so impressive when you compare them to airplanes zooming across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans here on Earth. For some perspective, the helicopter was originally designed to fly just 90 seconds at a time and cover a horizontal distance of 1,000 feet while flying 10 to 15 feet above the ground. It has doubled how far and how high it can fly. Ingenuity has clearly outdone itself. But now that we know its abilities, what are scientists doing with this amazing helicopter? If you listened to those previous shows we did concerning Ingenuity, you'll remember that its primary objective was to be a proof of concept for future missions. If NASA scientists had a rover which could not only roll but fly around Mars, it would be able to get samples from more places on the Martian surface. Additionally, being able to fly shows we have a reasonable understanding of the Martian atmosphere. Back in September, September, the Ingenuity team discovered that seasonal changes in the density of the Martian atmosphere were significant enough that the helicopter might hit an aerodynamic stall. This stall occurs when increasing blade angle increases drag instead of increasing thrust, according to Ingenuity's chief pilot, Havard Grip. But Ingenuity has been flying around while the air density continued to decrease. What gives? The team realized that increasing the helicopter rotor spin rate would provide them with an thrust necessary to fly the copter. After some calculations, they realized the necessary spin rate of 2700 RPM was higher than any tests they did here on Earth with Ingenuity. So they sent instructions for the Ingenuity helicopter to do a test. Don't leave the ground and run your rotors at 2800 RPM. Luckily, Ingenuity passed that test with flying colors and continued zooming around Mars. However, the increase in rotor speed made scientists consider a new problem. How fast would the blades be going relative to the sound speed of the Martian atmosphere? If the helicopter blades move faster than the sound speed, the helicopter would not fly efficiently. So they made sure the increased spin rate would not make the blades break the Martian sound speed. This problem is going to be our short science lesson of the day. Have you ever wondered what people mean when they say break the sound barrier or go Mach 1 or Mach 2, etc.? They were referring to the sound speed of the Earth's atmosphere. But sound speed is a generalized quantity and every gas or liquid has a sound speed, and Earth's sound speed varies with altitude. We only call it the sound speed because it is the speed at which noise travels here on Earth. If I yell, astronomy is great, from a rooftop, and you are a thousand feet away from me, then it will take a little less than one second for you to hear me, because the sound speed of air is about a thousand feet per second. Sound is just the compression of air, and the density of air will affect how that air compresses. As a result, changing the density of air changes the speed at which compressions travel through the air, meaning a change in how long it takes sound to travel from me to you. If a plane flies faster than the sound speed of air, then it breaks the sound barrier. A plane going at Mach 1 is going at exactly the sound speed, whereas a plane going at Mach 2 is going at twice the sound speed. Look up some videos of planes breaking the sound barrier. You'll notice the process creates a shockwave in the air around the plane. If the blades of the Ingenuity helicopter went faster than the Martian sound speed, they would generate a bunch of these shockwaves all around the blades of the helicopter. This would significantly decrease the helicopter's flight and thrust efficiency. Next time you see a movie or TV show, 
with a vehicle going faster than the speed of sound, look for shockwaves to see if the producers of that movie or TV show are being realistic. Hopefully you've enjoyed catching up with Ingenuity's adventures and learning about sound speed. I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headliner writer tonight was Sophie Leahy. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Up next is the Spanish language news and news Patio. Good night.